0: RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network.
1: Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 324, Destiny.
0: mission log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion,
2: and I'm Ken Ray. Each week, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for ideas and ideals, and seeing whether the whole thing holds up today.
0: This week, Destiny, the one where Cardassians come back to DS Nine on a mission of peace and scientific exploration. Well, most of them. I've got trivia coming up in a bit, but
2: first. But first. I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is at com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And with that, we turn it over to John Champion, because he does this trivia thing every week, and I got this crazy feeling he's going to want to do that again right now.
0: Shocking. This week, trivia on Destiny. Well, let's start off with the written-by credits. David S. Cohen and Martin A. Weiner. Now, here in the great tradition of Star Trek, we have two budding young writers who made their first professional sale because DS9 was picking up spec scripts. Martin has this as his only professional credit, while David had just a couple more after this. Now, also in the Hollywood tradition, we have a long and arduous trip, from story to screen, which is one reason why you don't see a teleplay credit on this episode. Most all of the writing staff had a hand in shaping what was ultimately filmed, and with some pretty major changes along the way. In fact, they've been sitting on this story since season two, and only this much later cracked what would make it work. The usual suspects, Ronald D. Moore, Iris Stephen Bear, Rene Echeverria, the whole gang, worked to get this one to what was ultimately filmed. Now, One of those changes was the whole nature of the prophecy, which was originally going to be something more positive than Doom and Gloom. But then where's the challenge for the DS9 crew? David Cohen later said that none of the dialogue from the original script he wrote with Martin Weiner made it into the final. This was directed by Les Landau. Of course, we know that name. Les started as a first assistant director on The Next Generation. Then he ended up as the uncredited director on Code of Honor before finally helming one all his own. That would be the schizoid man. The most recent of his DS9 episodes we discussed was Second Skin. We have a missing rule of acquisition here. Faith can move mountains of inventory.
2: Nice,
0: right? <laughs> it's a great one. Um, and everyone on staff agrees with you, Ken. They liked it so much. And even though it didn't make it into the episode, it did end up in that book written by Quark, as told to Iris Stephen Bear. Hey, how about that comet? Uh, it was a very cool, practical effect that was a model of created by Tony Menninger, so no CG was used in that. And uh, speaking of models and practical effects, that communications relay is a reuse of the Amargosa Observatory from Star Trek Generations, modified a bit here. They cut it down to have shorter arms than we saw in the movie. Now on to the guest stars. Dejar, the Cardassian representing the Obsidian Order, is played by Jessica Hendra. Not a long list of on-camera credits for Jessica. This episode is her first. Uh, Then she had a few more guest roles, like on Mad About You and Malcolm in the Middle. Most interesting to me, though, she actually worked in the Pup Tree department on The Spitting Image. If you remember that show, Giant Puppets, doing mostly political humor. Well, she worked behind the scenes in the art department, specifically on The Puppets for that one. Now, of course, we have two Cardassian scientists here who are front and center. That would be Ulani and Galora. Ulani is played by Wendy Roby. Wendy was a stage actor who heard about auditions for this quirky little show being produced in the Pacific Northwest. And before you know it, she's playing Nadine in David Lynch and Mark Frost Twin Peaks. Many TV and film appearances followed. And, of course, she returned as Nadine when Twin Peaks was revived in 2017. Galora is played by Tracy Scoggins. Now, genre audiences probably know Tracy very well, even if she is less recognizable here in Cardassian makeup. She was Captain Lockley on Babylon 5, and well before that, she was Cat Grant on Lois and Clark, and well before that, she was popping up on Dynasty, the Colbys, even the Dukes of Hazzard, and T.J. Hooker, to name just a very few. Now, she started out as a P.E. teacher before going into modeling, And after traveling the world as a model, then she started her long career in TV and film. This is her only Star Trek appearance. Incidentally, she wandered the Paramount lot while in makeup, specifically to scare kids in studio tours. Apparently, the uh, production got a call from security about that while they were shooting DS9. Finally, Vedic Yarka is played by Eric Avari, a very recognizable character actor. He's appeared in 150 titles since the early 60s. You may have caught him in Stargate the movie, Stargate SG-1, let's see, Planet of the Apes in 2001, Mr. Deeds, The Mummy, and just so many more. By the way, in Stargate, he's Kasuf, a kind of quasi-spiritual leader of his people, uh, and we'll catch him again with a guest spot on Enterprise.
1: (music) For it is written, when the moon is in the seventh house, and Jupiter aligns with Mars, then peace will guide the planet, and love will steer the stars. Prophecy of the Fifth Dimension Prologue
0: Everyone on DS9 is buzzing with the news of a couple of Cardassian scientists who will be visiting soon to work on a communications relay to send messages through the wormhole. Sisko wants them to feel comfortable and welcome, while Odo is concerned about security so soon after the new peace treaty with Bajor has been signed. Sisko says he wants the people on DS9 to get used to the idea of Cardassians hanging out and mingling. It'll be a step in the right direction. Most everyone seems into the idea of doing what needs to be done, until one unexpected visitor shows up. It's Vedic Yarka, and he's got a warning from the prophets. Act 1. There was a prophecy, one from 3,000 years ago. The third one told to Trakor. Three vipers, those of the Cardassians, will return to their nest in the sky, that's DS9, when they peer through the temple gates, which is the wormhole, then a sword of stars will appear in the heavens, the temple will burn, and the gates shall be cast open. We're not exactly sure what to make of the last part, but it's bad. There are two Cardassians expected, and Yarka says, just wait, there will be a third. To him, setting up the communications relay means the destruction of the wormhole and the fulfillment of the prophecy. Sisko doesn't outright dismiss Yarka, but he and Kira both make a case of how important communicating with a Gamma Quadrant is, and that's also how the Bajoran Assembly see it. That didn't stop Yarka, though. He sees Commander Sisko as the emissary and wants him to stop this mission. Leaving the office, Yarka says he and the others who believe him will hang out and pray for Sisko to make the right decision. Ulani and Galora, the Cardassian scientists, have arrived. They're both grateful, kind, sincere, and personable. Pretty much everything Sisko hoped for and Kira did not expect. They look forward to working on this monumental project. They get to work right away, chatting with Dax and O'Brien about some of the technical specs. It's kind of a tech-speak throwdown with each side taking shots about what works, what doesn't, and how O'Brien's assumption of 0.01% variance in his transceiver coils would just not do at all. It's been a long day, though. The Cardassians are off to their quarters. Oh, but there is one more thing. They forgot to tell Sisko that there will be another colleague, Dejar, joining them later. No problem. The commander says he'll arrange quarters. Then Kira is struck cold. Three of them. The prophecy said there would be three vipers. Act 2. Odo has been at work, looking into Vedic Yarka and his followers. Apparently the Vedic is no longer a Vedic at all, having been stripped of his title for his radical views, including protesting the peace treaty. He clearly has an agenda here by making noise about the prophecies and the communications relay. Odo tells Sisko that he should be aware of his own agenda too, not about the treaty or the relay, but about trying to distance himself from the title of emissary. On the promenade, Yarka catches up with Kira, trying to bend her ear again about how she has to do the right thing, meaning his thing, meaning she has to convince the emissary to cancel the mission. Kira says she can't, because Sisko is her commander, and she can't ignore his orders, to which Yarka says she no longer has the luxury of keeping her work life and her faith separate. She has to convince him, but he's not the one who's asking. It's the Prophets. Do it for them. Meanwhile, in Quark's bar, Dax and O'Brien are getting to know the two Cardassian scientists just as Dejar arrives. Dejar isn't quite as charming as the other two, even inferring that Ulani and Galora aren't quite Cardassian enough by turning up their noses at the Cardassian delicacies prepared by Quark. Later... Galora and O'Brien are at work in ops, and Galora does not approve of the changes the Chief has made to DS9's onboard conduits. He's keeping everything up to Starfleet code, including the second backup, which she thinks is ridiculous. There won't be nearly enough capacity to handle the throughput coming from the communications system. She turns away, doing some calculations on her own, to which O'Brien bristles and sarcastically says he'll be quiet. She says good, and asks him to fetch her a cup of tea. On board the Defiant, well, it's time to get going. The communications relay has been loaded, and then on DS9, O'Brien and Galora are doing their part to get the transceiver online. After passing through the wormhole, the Defiant encounters a rogue comet. It's very pretty, has a bright tail, so bright, in fact, that Kira immediately calls it the Sword of Stars. Act three, it's not a threat to the mission, though, and the communications really will be deployed in an hour. Just enough time for Cisco to have a word with Kira. Okay, enough with the prophecy talk, especially in front of the Cardassians. And Kira says she won't do it again. But while we're on the subject, yeah, all these things were predicted by the prophecy, the vipers, the sword of stars. And also, yes, Kira thinks Cisco is the emissary. He dismisses her claim and insists that he is a Starfleet officer doing a job. If he calls off the mission, then it's got to be for a sound reason, not because of an interpretation of ancient philosophy. Okay, says Kira, how about this? The prophets are aliens living in the wormhole. Their experience goes beyond the linear time we experience. Past, present, future are all one, which means they could have given Tricor some insight 3,000 years ago. No. To Sisko, it's all still metaphor and mistranslation. He has to go on the reality of the situation, not prophecy. Back on DS9, Galora and O'Brien are teching the tech, which means she is growing in frustration at all the modifications he's made— O'Brien stands up for himself, asserting that he is the chief engineer on this station and knows more about the systems here than she or anyone else does. If she'll step aside, he can get the job done, and she does, and she seems kind of pleased with that exchange. The relay is deployed, and everyone on Defiant is ready to get the test going. A carrier wave starts up, aimed for the wormhole and DS9 beyond. It doesn't work at first but switching over to the theta band has a strong effect. The wormhole opens up completely, along with it, a strong gravitational well affecting everything nearby, including the comet. If the comet enters the wormhole, this lithium in its core will cause a reaction collapsing the wormhole completely. Act 4. Defiant goes back to DS9 so everyone can meet to discuss the new problem— They've got about five hours before the comet gets dangerously close to the wormhole entrance, but there's a lot to figure out before then. The Cardassian scientists say they knew that this was a possibility, though a very remote one. They didn't include it in their proposal because the Cardassian military, who control the science ministry, like to see their projects at least look like they aren't dangerous. O'Brien has a suggestion. He could set up a wide range phaser array to try to knock out the comet completely rather than breaking it up into dangerous smaller pieces. Solid plan, they'll go with it. He says it'll take about three hours. So much teching of the tech to make this happen, and while O'Brien and Galora are working together in one of the Defiance Jeffrey's tubes, she's um well she's way flirty with the chief. She just comes right out and says she's fertile and uh, what? Well, she just assumed that with all the bickering and arguing, that was O'Brien's way of saying he was interested. He's not. He's definitely not. In fact, he is happily married. Oh, well, this must be a cultural thing, because to Galora, it was right out of the Cardassian playbook. O'Brien apologizes, then says they need to get back to work, but she crawls off, feelings a bit bruised. With the modifications wrapping up, Sisko is preparing for their next attempt when Dax visits him in his office. He's reading Bajoran prophecies, and of course he says they are vague and sometimes contradictory, but the truths give him pause. Dax asks Sisko point-blank, What would you do... If you had never heard of the prophecy, his answer is clear. He'd do the job. So in that case, she says, he needs to decide if he's going to follow that path or let the prophecies make the decision for him. Passing through the wormhole one more time, the defiant confronts the comet. Shields go up. Phasers are fired. Then explosions on the bridge. The modified phasers didn't work and everything is shorted out. The comet broke up into three pieces and are headed for the wormhole, and the Defiant is without a way to stop them. Act 5. So it's worse. O'Brien thinks he made a mistake that caused the phasers to burn out, but Galora points out something nobody else knew. Dejar was assigned by the Obsidian Order to watch over the scientists, but she's also likely there to sabotage the mission since the Order opposes the peace treaty. Easy enough. Cisco gives the order to confine her to quarters. So now what? Tractor beam is out. Weapons are offline. They could use a subspace field, like something created by a warp engine, to contain the solithium and prevent it from getting into the wormhole, even as they pass through it. The Defiant is too big to navigate around the three chunks of comet, so a shuttle pod will have to do. Commander Sisko says he'll pilot the shuttle, while the others go back to the Alpha Quadrant and wait. Kira says she'd like to be in the shuttle with him. Not only is she his first officer, but, you know, she wants to help the emissary. With the Defiant safely back on the other side, Sisko and Kira go right ahead with creating that subspace field around the fragments and go along for the ride. It's all working well, until it doesn't. Solithium begins leaking through their field, so Cisco reroutes more power to the subspace field coils, which also isn't quite enough. They do make it, the shuttle, the comet fragments, and everyone is okay, but a funny thing happened on the way to the Alpha Quadrant. You see, all that leaking solithium sort of left a little open crack in the wormhole, which means as soon as the shuttle came through, their communication signals did too. It all works, just like we hoped for from the beginning. All this brings Kira to an interesting revelation. The prophecies came true. All of them. Only they were looking at it the wrong way. The vipers weren't the Cardassians, they were the pieces of the comet. The temple gates are the ends of the wormhole, and the Silithium burned the temple gates open. The emissary, then, used the Sword of Stars to make it all happen— Shakur must have been shown all of this by the wormhole aliens. O'Brien and Galora say their goodbyes. She'll be fine. It's Dajar who needs to worry, since the Obsidian Order doesn't tolerate failure. Galora also says Keiko is a lucky woman, as she signs off with a friendly kiss on the chief's cheek. Yarka says his goodbye to Sisko. He's sorry he ever doubted the commander. Maybe the prophets wanted peace after all. Now that they've made it through this one, about that next prophecy, the end.
2: Jinkies, that was a lot.
0: Well, there's a lot going on there. You, you got prophecies, you got science, you got some, you got some just worked up Cardassians.
2: Yeah, you do. Well, one. One worked up Cardassian. <laughs> <laughs> the other two were actually very pleasant. They were very friendly. I look forward to seeing them week after week after week on the show.
0: What, uh, that would be awesome. Wouldn't it be neat? Because yeah.
2: we got the one, we got Garrick, plain, simple Garrick, who is, of course, neither plain nor simple. Yeah. Uh, you don't know whether you can trust that guy, you know, as far as you could throw him. You don't know how, how far you could throw him because he's just up on the screen.
0: Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But Galora, oh. that that's, I mean, I would like to see a lot more of her.
2: Are you coming on to her right now? M- maybe. Oh, sorry. Okay. maybe. That's, maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hey hey man, that's fine. Uh, try arguing with her a lot. Because apparently <laughs> that'll that'll do it.
0: I have a type. That's what I'm saying. I have a type. You know, scaly and yeah.
2: <laughs> hey, remember that time uh, the ruling power in the gamma quadrant told us to stay out?
0: Oh that was a thing, right?
2: Yeah, that was a thing that we just don't care. We just don't care. Like, you know, oh, it's, oh interesting. Stay out. That's an idea. What we're going to do instead, though, is make it much easier to communicate with this side, you know, just so we can know when you're coming. How would that be? Can I just can I just tell you that?
0: Instead? Well, it's like, OK, say say you're told to stay out of, of a particular place. But could you could you just put like a string with a bell nearby so that if there was something going on, yeah. then you'd know.
2: Well, the Dominion certainly has seemed very forgiving of such things. So, yeah, why not keep trying it week after week?
0: That's true. Yeah. Okay. Good call. And, and park it right in front of the wormhole where it's like, hey, look over here. There's a wormhole. This is... <laughs> right.
2: right. Which has to be the worst kept secret. Hey, I did have a question, actually, and wasn't sure if it was explained. So, if you don't send out whatever neutrino pulse or something, right? Yeah. Before trying to go through the wormhole, nothing happens. Right. I mean, you have to, like, activate the wormhole, don't you?
0: It, it it seems like it. Like, it's weird because it just sort of shows up. Like, the wormhole is always there. Right. But the matter of going through it, the matter of going in and out of it, it just seems pretty instantaneous. Like, we're going to head that way. Oh, look, we're going through. But I guess the neutrino beam is what you have to do.
2: Right. Because I'm thinking that comet wouldn't have gone through the wormhole if they hadn't taken the comet through the wormhole.
0: <laughs> That's true. It would have just gone into...
2: What has gone like right just like past the wormhole, right? Well, like just floated through space, minding its own. Then, of course, the prophecy wouldn't have been fulfilled, but they were like, Oh, we have to do something about the comet. Well, or stay away, just just be quiet for a minute, and it'll go that way. And you can keep, you know, keep failing at uh, setting up your communications array.
0: Yeah. You know, that, that is a funny thing. It's we, been we come back to we got an email from Dave Williams. Hi, Dave, uh, saying that, you know, what was the assumption here about the, uh, the, the, the prophecy being a positive or a negative? They had to do something or not do something like maybe the goal is to make the prophecy happen. Like maybe you really need to make it happen instead of not making it happen as opposed to uh, uh, what seemed to be uh, Yarko's problem here. So to your point. That would have been a great opportunity to say, like, yeah, we're, we're just going to... If we don't do anything the wormhole, nothing will happen. We'll be fine.
2: Yeah, that's the weird thing. I think we may have gotten an email, and maybe it was Dave's email as well. We got a bunch of emails about this episode beforehand, including yeah. one that began, I know you guys don't like to read emails about an episode you haven't done yet. Yep. And that's honestly as far as I got in that one, because I thought, okay, so this is established. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, it's like like... They might be giants. Sure as you can't steer a train, you can't change your fate. If 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 it was stated, and maybe this is for next segment, but if it was mm-hmm. stated that this was a thing that happened, mm-hmm. well then it happened. And yeah. and to try to decide whether or not you're going to do the thing, it doesn't matter. I mean, you can say you're doing the thing, you can say you're not doing the thing. If the thing happened, you're doing the thing.
0: But what you need is just a list of prophecies little asterisk. That, that leads to the ones that say, please don't let this
2: happen. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. Or, or just your mileage may vary. Yeah, right. Exactly.
0: Hey, uh, let's talk about some rules. We got two new rules. Yes. 34th and 35th <laughs> rules of acquisition. Love how this is played. 34, war is good for business. Number 35, peace is good for business.
2: It's easy to get them confused. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I like that one a those.
2: lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what did, what did uh, Cisco say when he was talking about the Bajorans coming on? No, the Cardassians coming on, excuse me. Because uh, Odo was like, yeah, I'm going to have security all over the Cardassians. And, uh, and and Cisco's like, uh, no, don't. I, I want the Bajorans of the station to get used to seeing Cardassians walking around and uh, hopefully not stabbing them to death on the promenade like that guy at one time in that episode. Am I right, Odo? Oh, no. Am I right? Oh, oh. Too soon? Odo... Oh, no. Because, you know, it's going to be a duet. It's going to be a duet of Cardassians wandering around. And I understand there's safety in numbers, but that's still only two. And as we've established many times, there are at least 300 people living on Deep Space Nine. Now, I know they're not (laughs) all Bajorans. Yeah, but a lot of them are. Exactly. Certainly enough that, you know, I'd say you could probably field uh, 10 to take on two Mm -hmm. Cardassians that they don't like. Yeah. Yeah, just kind of weird for him to be like, no, 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 just let just... Let them run around. It'll be fine. Yeah. I'm sure nothing will happen.
0: You got shuttles coming up from Bajor all the time. Some of those take like a couple of hours. Some of them are like these horrendous (laughs) two week journeys. You know, there might be some very ornery Bajorans by the time they get there.
2: Oh, and I understand that there's a whole group of Bajorans against the Cardassians being here who are going to be here uh, working themselves into a religious fervor this week. Ooh, yeah, they'll be fun. Yeah. I can't see any problem with letting the Cardassians just wander.
0: <laughs> uh, hey, so in that opening scene, when they're trying to prepare for the arrival of the Cardassians and Cork uh, brings the two bottles of Kenar, uh why is Dax opening a bottle of Canar intended for somebody else? Like, <laughs> Ken, if I brought over a bottle of 18-year-old McCollin for you right and i said hey ken this is for you it's this 18 year McCollin. If somebody else just like opened it and stuck their finger in there like oh mm, this seems like it's not good or or hey this is great like that that's not cool right
2: well let's be honest though if i were to bring you that i would say Mm -hmm. here i brought this bottle of 18 year old McCollin for you had half of it on the train it's great (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, that's that's probably the case, yeah. That could happen. Hey, and uh, Morn got sick from the canar. Uh, funny little side bit of dialogue there because you you just have to wonder what would make Morn sick? Because he's a big guy, he's he, he's a quiet guy, but he seems to just go through a lot.
2: Do you, you know? think do you think Quark was actually testing whether the Canar was bad, or do you think he's just sick of Morn? Sick of all his talking.
0: <laughs> right here, just Keep going. This is for you,
2: and this is for you, and this is for you. Plenty more where that came from <laughs> if you actually make it through it. Hey, uh, so it was interesting to hear the Cartesians talk about uh, Terek Nor. Oop, Terek Nockward. Oh! Sort of terrible. Nice. What happened there was uh, Terekable.
0: <clears throat> hey, we got a shout out to Yamak Sauce. Yeah. Uh, that is good, and and apparently being served with quite a Cardassian charcuterie platter that Quark put together. Now I couldn't get a good look at it, uh, but maybe that's a good thing because I'm just thinking it's something that I could recreate and pass off very easily. The eggs really are are the the prominent piece there, and you could do like the uh, have you have you seen those eggs that are like the tea stained eggs? It's very interesting. They kind of uh, are, are cracked, and then they they soak in tea, so they pick up the color there, and they get a interesting little pattern on them this is all stuff that you could do uh at home if you're having a cardassian themed dinner party (laughs)
2: that that sounds great yeah although apparently you know the the cardassians you want to hang out with uh don't actually want to eat the cardassian food
0: oh yeah that's true Uh, so hey this is one more reason for me to argue with galora um, so, hey, I like the idea of Starfleet requiring a second backup for communications. Th- this is all, I mean, like when you study our space program, mm-hmm. things are built with triple redundancy and that, that just is par for the course should they all be in exactly the same place? Because it seems like, and maybe I'm reading it wrong, but it seems like they pull off that panel and ops and he's just like, yeah, you got the system and then the backup and then the backup for the backup all right there.
2: Yeah, you know, dealing with enough infosec people over the years, it's always like, yeah, you should keep like a backup in the cloud and then keep a physical backup. Don't keep a right. physical backup in the same place that you are though, because if your house burns down and your mm-hmm. computer melts and your physical backup was right there, then that's going to melt too. And you're yeah. Like, Oh, yeah. I hadn't really thought about that. So, yes, yeah. I understand what you're saying. Well, actually, what struck me as confusing about this, the Cardassian uh, Galora, um, incredulous that they would have a second backup. This from a people who think the perfect novel is a novel and six more just like it. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. they it's are right. all about redundancy and repetitiveness and redundancy. I mean, we, we had a whole episode about that with uh, with uh, Garrick. Yeah. Uh, the one where he got sick, The Wire. And in yeah. the, the wire they're talking about that whole redundancy thing there. And yeah. she's like, What, two backups? <laughs> you people are wasteful and mad. Right. And we're never gonna be able to jam as much power through this as we want to.
0: Well look, she she's a scientist, not an artist like Garrick.
2: Well, wow. I guess, except it seems like the whole society, didn't he say the whole society was based on that? It was just, it was honestly just a weird thing because that yeah. is one of my favorite parts about the Cardassians that they're just like, you know, we're going to do it and we're going to do it and we're going to do it until we get it right. And then we're going to do it four more times. <laughs> <laughs> I love that about them. You know, they're like, yeah, yeah, no, if something, if something works, you stick with it repetitively rip, yeah. or repeatedly right. or, you know, one of the two.
0: Another bit of uh, Galora and O'Brien, uh, she says, you're married? And he says, yes, happily. And it's like, oh, oh, Chief O'Brien, do we need to have a talk?
2: Really? <laughs> okay, but, but really? I would love it uh-huh. if she had been like, because I was talking to uh, that, that horrible little bartender and uh, and that woman with the spots on her head.
0: And and basically everybody else here.
2: And that sick guy from that horrible, horrible bottle of canar. He wouldn't stop talking about the fact that your marriage is like, Bleh.
0: Right. Exactly. Um, Oh, did you pick this up? Dax uh, says about O'Brien, you know, he's a born engineer. He always gives himself a comfortable margin with his repair estimates. And I immediately thought of Scotty. Yeah. You know, I get that. Yeah. It's it's a good
2: thing. What was he? It's Jordy who didn't do that. Scotty yelled at him in Relics. Right. Was it Relics? Right. I think it was Relics, wasn't it? Yeah.
0: yeah well, that's the only time that they meet. Yeah.
2: Well, yes, I know it's the only time they meet. I couldn't remember if that was actually the name of the episode. But yeah. yes. Yeah, no, that, not that not all the other episodes with Jordy and Scotty. <laughs> Where they hang out. I would read the heck out of those novels. Yeah. Oh. Mm, I say that, but now I'm afraid somebody's going to be like, oh, there's a whole series of five. No. And, no. Nope. And, you know, nope. Did I say I would read them? I said I'd be interested to know whether they exist.
1: For it is written A broom is drearily sweeping. Up the broken pieces of yesterday's life. Somewhere a queen is weeping. Somewhere a king has no wife. The Hendrix Prophecy.
0: Without your faith, Nerisse, what do you have left? Yeah, what what do you have left? I mean, man, this is the problem that they're grappling with in this episode. And as much as it raises my blood pressure, because <laughs> yeah, we could just talk about prophecy and and uh, inspiration and knowledge from revelation all day long. Um, I'm glad to see this conversation happening in Star Trek, because I I think you could parallel this with other episodes where Trek tries to take on these big ideas and uh, whether or not they succeed in this episode of of really making a point with it. Well, we we can talk about that. We can debate that. But, you know, at the core here, we have uh, a true believer who is pitted against other true believers about the words of a prophecy, which are nearly impenetrable. Um, mm-hmm. I, I specifically left out in the, uh, recap, the other part of the prophecy about the river and all that just for time, because look, it, it's going to be long, but here they have a river and, uh, well, because it was reclaimed because it was flowing again. Uh, so that was the impetus to then say, oh, look, this thing happened. Therefore, everything else that happens will be true as well. Even though these words could literally mean Anything, and by the way, I don't know if the Cardassians uh, like being called vipers or not. I think that might be a little, uh, a little uh, intense. You know, they might see that as an insult, or they might think it's cool. I don't know.
2: <laughs> they might think it was cool. Yeah, yeah. I don't, they I could know either.
0: I mean, but it comes down to this. I mean, there's no demonstrable, objective, evidence-based way to interpret any of this. So we're all just left with best guesses of what to do or what not to do and hope it all works out for the best, which is the same process of doing anything, whether you have a prophecy or not. Um, There's a, uh, of course, I like the scene with Dax uh, laying this all out for Cisco saying, look, what would you be doing anyway? Okay, do that. Because that's what you would be doing, following uh, the, the the patterns and ideals and the understanding that you have. Don't let this other kind of mixed up information get you off of your path and off the reasonable path that you're following. Um, and there's another interesting bit that goes along with this. Not, not exactly in the vein of the prophecy here, uh, but... When uh, I guess it's in Act Four when they're talking about what happened, uh, what's gone wrong. Maybe it's right at the beginning of Act Five when they talk about what happened, what's gone wrong, and uh, uh, the three Cardassian scientists are saying, "Well, we knew this could be a problem, and we knew it was within about a two percent variable here, so we didn't bring it up uh, because the Cardassian government likes us to act with efficiency and and downplay any dangers." Um, I Actually, I thought of uh, a show that's been on very recently, which is Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. And I have to admit that I haven't watched all of it. I've only watched a couple of episodes of it. But I was very interested in reading the responses uh, from the people who created that show, saying that if you think this is a show about nuclear power specifically, you're wrong. This is a show about being dishonest about science. And, not, and, and allowing propaganda to overtake our ability to actually do things on a clear, evidence-based, objective, demonstrable path. So I thought that was a very interesting way to, to, to talk about that issue. Um, and we get a little bit of uh, a taste of that here. One of the other things that drives me insane in this is uh, Yarka, Yarka saying, uh, well, it's not a, it is not I, it is the prophet's. And, mm-hmm. and what a way to just wash your hands of any responsibility of any of this stuff. And at the same time, sort of uh, try to try to bolster your own position like this is his pre- position, obviously, no matter what. But then he gets to say, oh, oh well, no, 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 it, it, it's not me. I'm just doing what the prophets tell me to do. And this, of course, is something that we've seen uh, Kai Wen, even back when she was Wen, use as well. You got to you sort of hide yourself in this uh, impenetrable cloak by saying, "Oh no, you you can't blame me if something goes wrong. I'm doing what the prophets are telling me to do."
2: Yes, yes. <laughs> so I, honestly, all of my thoughts on on all that stuff is probably going to be for the end of the show.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I, and I'll come back around to it as well for sure. Um, there, there's one other little bit here that I liked. It, it was a line that. Uh, it's just so obvious, uh, but it's um, it's Cisco saying this all depends on how you interpret an ancient text that's been translated and translated over the centuries, which you could apply to our understanding of any centuries old text which has been translated and translated over and over and over again. Done with my rant. <laughs>
2: Well, no, it's it, 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 well. Yeah, you will be able to revisit it. Right? Oh, yeah. Sure, are you. Yeah, oh, yeah, coming up in just a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, this might tie into it a tiny bit because I know this was just a throwaway thing, but you mentioned it earlier. The rules of acquisition uh, numbers thirty-four and thirty-five. Mm-hmm. Uh, thirty-four war is good for business, and thirty-five peace is good for business. Um, there's symmetry, I think, to just that little tiny, funny throwaway bit. At the beginning, and what ends up being true for Vedic Yarka in the end, right? Mm. Everything's good for business. You know what's great for business? War. Okay, well, war is actually kind of played out, so let's try peace for a bit. And that's good for business too, it turns out. yeah Because we can take all the industry that we use to make things, to blow things up, and use that to rebuild things, right? Yeah. And the same goes for the prophecy. Obviously, the prophecy is about the three Cardassians, except for when it turns out to not be. Oh, okay, well, then it turns out it's about the three parts of the comet. Okay. well then you know or maybe it was about the Cardassians, and who knows maybe something else is going to happen or maybe you're reading the whole thing wrong anyway i don't know that that was intentional in fact i feel fairly certain it wasn't especially once you tell me that this was an episode that was pretty much written by committee Mm -hmm. but i did love that at the beginning that they're like yeah you know it's 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 all the same it's pretty much it's pretty much what those two rules of acquisition say Uh, business is good for business everything's good for business and everything's good for prophecy it seems or prophecy is good for everything, depending on how you look at it.
0: But Well, well but I, I think it very neatly parallels the interpretation of the, of the prophecy. The interpretation of the prophecy is either this is going to go horribly wrong or this is going to go great. It is all a matter of perspective. It is all the, your interpretation of the of the prophecy is purely based on perspective and bias uh, going into it and coming out of it. It seems. Right. So, Yeah. Yeah, uh, it it honestly doesn't matter where you land on that. Somebody, oh, I'd say like a quark, is going to come along and figure out a way to make the best of it.
2: And the Vedic is going to find a way to say, see? Yeah. I mean, I know he said he he was wrong, but he didn't even say he was wrong. He said he just misinterpreted it. Okay, so you weren't wrong. You were just mistaken. Is that right? Okay, that's fine. Mm -hmm. You know, please, you know, whatever. (laughs)
0: That'll drive me nuts, too. Um, Hey, since we're going to come back to the prophecy bit, because it it, it obviously does, uh, that is the most important bearing on this episode, Uh, just while we're in this segment, uh, I I do want to touch a little bit on the character bits with Galora and O'Brien. I I thought they were good. I thought they were fun. Um, I I thought there were some interesting things to parse here, uh, that on her world, the scientists are women, and this is kind of... I felt two ways about that. Uh, First of all, I felt like it was one of those sci-fi tropes where it's just like, now we're going to make the top, the bottom. We're going to make right, left. And that's how we make it science fiction. Um, So a a bit of that was sort of obvious to me. Um, But I I did think it was... uh, I, first of all I question if there are any male scientists uh, on Cardassia prime and why it is that that science is almost exclusively uh, handled by women um, but I, I thought that it led to good interaction and a good piece of backstory and, and again a good broadening of the Cardassian uh, background and and the the depth that we've given to them over time uh, so I thought that stuff is valuable now I wondered, about the tension between uh, Galora and O'Brien and with O'Brien having every reason to be defensive and tense around her and she thought that this was a, uh, a come-on. Um, I, I think we're supposed to take it as all Cardassian relationships are like this or is it just her or just Women scientists. I, I wasn't sure exactly how to take that other than just assuming, okay, we're painting with a broad brush here. And we're just saying like, no, if, uh, if somebody is mean to you, then they like you because that's how Cardassians are.
2: Wow, it's like a planet of fifth graders.
0: See? That's what kind of worried me about it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Here's the thing, though. It's interesting because there's something you're seeing as they're saying this about all Cardassians, and then you're wondering if something is just her. It Mm. sounded to me like she was saying, in her experience, men suck at engineering. I didn't think she was saying that's Mm. the way it is on Cardassia. I thought she was saying what she has found is that males are useless in that case, which is a bit different but then, conversely, when O'Brien says all we've been doing is fighting, and she's like, "Yeah," and he's like, "Oh, that's right, because that's Cardassians. That's right. I remember mm-hmm. that." I mean, which is, I mean, it's fine. I mean, it's it sort of played as an interesting bit of comedy. I, I do like the fact that she definitely ends up with more respect for him by the end of it, and he certainly has more respect for her than he's ever had for just about any Cardassian. I would imagine. Because, of course, he was, you know, he was part of some war and he was he was a prisoner and, and he just has hated Cardassians from the word go. Yeah. And to see him like, you know, actually working with somebody and 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 gaining a bit of respect and, and like not, you know, not smacking her when she went to kiss him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean <laughs> there, there actually seems to be a bit of seems to be a bit of a bit of growth from for Mr. O'Brien there. Boy, I, I'll bet he can't wait to tell Keiko.
1: For it is written. Hear the voices calling to their confederates. See the tiny figures stretching their limbs, stand back, and watch them. From the prophecy of the giants, potentially.
0: Just like it was preordained by the prophets, we've arrived at the last segment. Mission Log. This is the part, of course, where we talk about the morals and meanings and messages and we figure out if it actually does stand the test of time. Uh, Ken, I'm going to let you roll with this uh, because I I think maybe you got some ideas here to share with us and then I'll I'll chime in at the end. Okay.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, As a production, I would say it's great. Great design, great effects, you know, all that stuff. Um, I'm into the Cardassians. Not like I want to be them. I hope not. Yeah. Although uh, they're meticulous. You got to give them that, you know, measure once, twice, three times, however many, eight, maybe six, somewhere between six and eight cut once and, you know, and then six more times. I, I, I'm into them. I think they're like probably in all of the Star Trek that we've watched so far, they may be the most well-realized race. I don't want to say alien race, but outside of humans, because, you know, being humans, writing, about Star Trek I think we pretty much got humans nailed um, but as far as the rest of them like Klingons sort of come and go like sometimes they're just devious sometimes they're honor bound sometimes they're stealing sometimes they're killing um, you know the Ferengi sometimes they're uh, feral sometimes they're you know very meticulous uh, they seem to have the Cardassians down from the word go mm-hmm. and, and so following them is interesting and so honestly almost any Cardassian episode at this point I'm like alright I'm in for it that's great And that, that of course, would be the scientists and all that stuff. I like the science part. I like the cultural misunderstanding part between Miles and Galora, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, The A plot I found frustrating. uh, Mm. Because with the exception of bread and circuses, you know, uh, Star Trek has always sort of decided about the God thing. It, It seems to have been... Yeah, we used to do that. We don't do that anymore. Right. I mean, Apollo was part of an ancient spacefaring race. Uh, Lucian was part of an ancient spacefaring race. Cyborg hijacked the Enterprise in Star Trek V to take us to meet God. And that guy was actually part of a spacefaring race in prison. Right. I mean, Star Trek to this point has sort of made its decision about God. Um. And the Bajorans are choosing to, like, not, or really, uh, the writers of Deep Space Nine are choosing not to uh, adopt that part of Star Trek for whatever reason. Um, and so, then I find myself going down the rabbit hole of, of, okay, well, what are the Bajorans doing? Because we talked about this, I believe, in the second or third episode of Deep Space Nine. There are things in the wormhole that the Bajorans could actually get to know. They could befriend them, right? Mm-hmm. But. Uh, the Bajorans instead are choosing to treat these things, these understandable things, as deities. Uh, Kaiopaka actually decided for Bajor that they didn't want to know the prophets. And it's kind of frustrating because you know, for us, in, in God is unknowable, including whether or not there is one. And you can choose to live however you want to at that point. But for us, it's an unanswerable question, a literally unanswerable question, unless it turns out you know that all the world's leaders... Pulled a kaiopaka on us, right? And they're like, oh yeah, I know, we, we know about the God thing, but we don't want to tell you because it might mess stuff up. Um, questions of faith in Deep Space Nine are frustrating to me because we have seen behind the curtain. Cisco has seen behind the curtain. We know what's there. And so I find myself like tripping over all that and getting really you know, bothered by all of that. But overall, what I think I find most frustrating is in the 1960s and 19, you know, 80s. Uh, Star Trek was willing to take a risk and say, we can imagine a world without God. And for some reason, the Star Trek of the 1990s wants to keep arguing about God and arguing about arguing about God instead of, you know, listening to the John Lennon song or watching old episodes of Star Trek and saying, you know what we could not do? This. And I understand the temptation right now to... I want to try to figure out where somebody else is coming from, and I want to try to figure that out, too. I want to try to understand it. I want to try to understand all of the, I will, I will say it bluntly, superstition that affected my life mm-hmm. based on, not even based on anybody I know's understanding of any sort of scriptural text, but based on what somebody else told them was what they should know about it. And I kind of I preferred the Star Trek that was like, yeah, all right, we're, we're, we're going to go ahead past that. And so I think I think for that reason, I find this episode really frustrating, not because of any of the decisions that they came to, which I do find frustrating. Um, but just the fact that we're still talking about it. What about you?
0: So um, I'm going to agree with you up to a point. Uh, I, okay. I will agree with you that uh, as a production This one's got it all. I mean, uh, the action is good. The pacing is good. The characters are really solid. Um, It's just a well-produced, well-written episode. I I was surprised that so many people who worked on it kind of disavowed it. And it was a mess. It didn't come together. And and I, I felt like, well, this really felt like, and I hate to put it this way, this felt like Star Trek to me. Not to say that other episodes don't feel like Star Trek, but this felt like Star Trek to me because you had this science fiction space story, but you got to talk about ideas that were relatable to humanity and human history. Um, So all of that is very good. Your frustration with it, though, uh, it, it, it surprises me and it doesn't surprise me. And here's the thing. I I think you should be frustrated by it. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing about the episode, because I think the episode is presenting a frustrating idea, which is everything that you laid out, which is to say all right, uh, he, here's a knowable scientific thing. Here's a wormhole. We can study it. We can fly through it. We figured all of this out not that long ago, and we can get in there, and uh, Cisco had this experience, and guess what? The These entities that the Bajorians worship for so long, they're they're just aliens. Now, they're very different from us. They experience time in a different way. Uh, clearly, they're their interdimensional uh, abilities, very different from our own that, that, that's all a knowable thing, right? But because of Kaiopaka deciding uh, for everybody, apparently, that, that they were not going to go that route, not going to go figure out who they are and make contact with them. Um, I, I think that's something that for as frustrating as it, as it is to me as well. Actually, I, I kind of understand it. Like, I, I, I get it because I think that that is using the Bajoran society to reflect something about humanity. Now, you and I might look at Star Trek and go, OK, the Federation is this idealized version of who people are. And and you and I can look at a Kirk or a Picard or a Cisco or any other number of characters who are not making decisions based on knowledge that was presented to them in a prophecy or revelation. It's just based on the natural world and the scientific information that they have. And we can go, yeah, that's the ideal. That's what we want to live up to. And those are the characters we hope to identify with. But we can also look at it and go, well. As we said, Riker isn't real. The Enterprise isn't real. Vulcans aren't real. Klingons aren't real. But Jorans aren't real either. But they do represent something about humanity, and it might be humanity in the past, or it might be humanity in the present for a 20th or 21st century audience, where you look at that and go, "Wow, you know, all they had to do was just reach out and learn something about the universe around them, but instead, they've decided to stay." with this mythologized, uh, uh, you know, mystic, spiritual version of this thing that they could actually understand and might propel their society forward in ways that they can't even imagine.
2: Yeah, the problem that I have, though, is it goes in completely the opposite direction. Right. so? So, Well, because they have uh, Vedic um, Yarka. Yarka? They have the Vedic Eric coming in and saying, well, no, this is absolutely what this means. This is absolutely what this means. Mm -hmm. And then it doesn't go the way he thinks it's going to go. But then it's written in such a way that you can be like, oh, well, no, it turns out this is actually what this meant. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, like, so uh, Cisco, I guess, is dealing with a crisis of faith in this thing that he doesn't believe in. And so he decides to ignore the thing he doesn't believe in and go ahead. But then it turns out, oh, it turns out it was the thing that he didn't believe in all along. I mean, do you see what I'm saying? It's not even like, it's not even raising questions of faith as much as it's, you know, sort of raising questions of interpretation of faith, because faith's a given in this episode. Yeah. It just is. It's, it's, you know, boy, those prophets, huh? <laughs> and they're going to end up being right, whether they were right or not, whether they're prophets or not. I mean, they're putting a sheen of, of reli- religiosity on a show that for the most part had rejected it.
0: Yeah, but again, I still think that's fair, though. I I think it's okay, because if the message at the end of the day is, look, uh, prophecy is kind of useless, (laughs) because it's not giving you directions, it's not telling you, whether we say it's the the nonsense that a Nostradamus wrote hundreds of years ago, or if it's in this science fiction contest, whatever, a Takor wrote 3,000 years ago, it's not giving you direction, it's just saying, here's a thing, well... Yeah, you can choose to interpret it however you want. Ultimately, it comes down to making a decision based on the information you have at hand. So would I have liked a different response out of uh, out of Cisco? Well, probably so. It is this weird kind of moment that he has with Kira at the end where, where he, he sort of gets glassy eyed at, at the idea of believing in the prophecy, but again it had it, it didn't matter if he believed or not he he just has to take the information that he has and do what 's right, just do what what the 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 information he has compels him to do so yeah, look i mean i'll go as far as to say that i I think that had we been dealing with and I'm going to do what some people in our audience hate. Had we been dealing with this kind of story with a Captain Kirk or a Captain Picard would have been very different because you would have wrapped up the whole uh, spiritual through line of DS nine in like an episode or two it would be mm-hmm. picard giving an amazing speech and uh, introducing the wormhole aliens to the people who worship them as gods and just saying hey look you have so much to learn and you can you can be so much better than you are if it were kirk he would have blown something up and said your god is a lie and then left and that would right. have been it so you know two different ways three different ways here to handle this And I know that we have so much more to go with Cisco and we have so much more to go with this sort of spiritual journey of the show. But um, look, I I want the shows that I watch, and I guess particularly I want Star Trek that I watch to take on big ideas. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I guess if you're not talking about sex, religion or politics, what are you talking about? Well, here we got to talk, at least in some way about religion or religious belief in the face of some sort of evidence-based information and how that still messes with people's interpretations, how it messes with their motivations. So I found all of that really interesting. Is it the best message at the end of the day? I don't know. I mean, if the message for me is just Nostradamus is full of Nostra nonsense, then sure. But I would also say that, look, at the end of the day, prophecy and revelation is not the way to make decisions about the real world. You just have to go on what you have. Um, it, It sort of becomes a mental exercise at the end. Can you bend these impenetrable words to make it sound like it fit what you did? So... I, I don't know. I mean, I can sit here and I can begrudge the Bajorans all day for maintaining this belief, but they were kind of backed into a corner at some point with Kayapaka just deciding for everybody, like, no, we're not going to go that route. Now, could I see a uh, a young upstart like a like a Vedic Barile saying, hey, let's go in there and find out what happened? Oh, I guess we can't rely on a guy like Vedic Barile anymore.
2: Too soon, John. Too soon.
0: Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can check out all the shows of the Roddenberry Podcast Network at podcast.roddenberry.com. Too many to mention, but I'll mention them anyway. Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Women at War, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam! Shabam! If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com.
2: On the next Mission Log, Profit Motive.
1: Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Without looking ahead, I really hope there is a sequel to this episode and that it is called Destiny's Child. Thank you. You have been a wonderful audience. Thank you. End transmission.